Good morning, church. Good morning. Morning. We are in this series all together now uh, about how and why to be in community with one another. This is week four, and we've learned so far uh, that, you know, we're designed to be in community as God is in community, uh, but that it's hard, that community takes work. It takes us figuring out how to live vulnerably and counterculturally and share ourselves with others. My daughter uh, is not a culinary connoisseur. She's 15 months, so I'll give her that. Uh, But her favorite food is currently somehow hot dogs. And I think it's a universally accepted fact that if you're going to eat a hot dog, um, it is better on the grill than it is in the microwave. I think, yeah. Um, However, Isla cares less about the quality. She wants it fast and she wants it hot. Sometimes she doesn't even care if it's hot. But if you want it good, it takes longer. And life together is the same. Good takes time. And so we're going to keep looking at that uh, today. It's a word for all of us. Those who maybe are standing on the sidelines, not yet sure if we want to jump in, not yet maybe in uh, some sort of community with your church family. Uh, those who are, you know, in up to your ankles, you do the things, but maybe you don't share the life. Uh, and those who are all in uh, with community, especially those who are in small group communities. This is a word for you today. Uh, Ensuring um, that you are putting yourself into your group, into your community, so that you are receiving the fullness of the way that it was designed to be. Um, Because God has something to say about how we put community into practice, and that's what we're going to look at today. In the first century... During Jesus' ministry and in the period uh, that the New Testament was written, uh, culture and society in that part of the world largely uh, were built around um, kind of an honor-shame culture model. Uh, Especially in these ancient times, your family relationship provided your basic identity. Your entire worldview was based on a sense of familial and racial loyalty to those that you were a part of, your tribe. And so uh, when Jesus set up his followers to be kind of a surrogate family, this was shocking to people. To, you know, for us it's warm and fuzzy, but to, to be a part of this family meant foregoing loyalty to another family. You could not be a part of the early church and it not affect your social and your family attachments and obligations at some level. This was an all-in community. And, you know, this community, this family that was being formed was unlike anything else out there. Jesus intended his followers to inherit uh, all the closeness and the mutual obligation that belonged with family members in close-knit family-based societies like this one. And that was amazing. That still is amazing. An invitation to be a part of the family of God. And so, as the gospel spread, these communities began cropping up in towns and in villages of believers that were living distinctly uh, within their surrounding culture. And it deeply offended the status quo because believers were subverting the norms of social and cultural life in the Roman Empire. And that partially is what led to persecution. While there were other religious, uh, you know, groups of the day outside of the mainstream cultural religion, none was so offensive as the early church. What 
then made it so necessary for them to lean on and depend on each other. With such a high cost, there was no doing this life alone. Uh, this life was hard. But if, as we've said before, doing life together is also hard. <laughs> and so naturally, the early church had some issues it had to figure out and had to overcome. There was infighting and false teaching and uh, bickering and confused priorities, all in the midst of uh, and on top of the persecution and even martyrdom that they were facing. So as the church grew, the church needed instruction, specifically for believers and what is to be expected of their relationship with other believers. These are scattered throughout the New Testament letters as one another's, uh, here and there, instructions for believers with believers. One another's, each other's. There are around 60 directives for believers with other believers using the phrase one another. And so welcome to my 60-point sermon. I am kidding. So throughout the New Testament, most of these one another's are written by Paul uh, as he authors letters of encouragement and instruction to these uh, believers in churches throughout Asia Minor. Paul knows the unique situations of the audiences to which he is writing. And so he's speaking into their issues. And a lot of one anothering instructions we read are kind of self-explanatory. Uh, if you're a parent or a teacher in the room, uh, it's, you know, I shouldn't have to say this, but, like, don't stab Jimmy with your colored pencils. Uh, you know, but we're kind of terrible at it. Church, that's why there's so much instruction. We don't get it. We have to be constantly reminded. It has to, you know, keep being put in front of us. Uh, we haven't totally figured out how um, to do it, all that goes in to this living life together. So, thankfully, we have some instruction. So who are we? Church, what are we supposed to be? Are there behaviors which are to make us believers distinct from the world and from communities around us? The majority of these dozens of one another verses focus on three areas. They can pool into one of three categories, almost all of them. Unity with one another, humility or deference toward one another, and loving one another well. So we're going to look at those, see if we can make it make sense. We're going to start with unity. A third of the one another verses are centered on unity, on the church getting along. Uh, this looks like be at peace with one another. Do not grumble among one another. Accept one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Confess sins to one another. You know, gently, patiently tolerate one another. And the list goes on. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was up here and I talked about how necessary it was for believers to have a community where they felt accepted and loved, but also challenged and held accountable. And, you know, these instructions for unity make such a community possible. And these are things that are possible to do whether or not we feel like doing them with other believers. That's a good thing for us, uh, that sometimes in our walk with Jesus, our behaviors can help to mold our souls by doing what it is we know we should be doing even if we don't feel like it, if the willingness is there, the willingness to become more like Jesus. If you remember, at the beginning of the Toy Story franchise, uh, Sheriff Woody and Buzz Lightyear were not fans of each other. 
in an unflattering moment of, um, you know, envy and jealousy, a little frustration, Woody accidentally pushes Buzz out of a second story window. And the guilt tripping from his peers forces him uh, into trying to rescue Buzz and bring him home. And so this is what we see. This is the plot of the movie. Through the course of the movie, these rivals begrudgingly stick together uh, and try to help one another out of trouble to hopefully uh, find their way back to Andy's room. And they grow together through it, again, begrudgingly. Uh, Woody has been trying to convince Buzz since the beginning that he is not indeed a space ranger, uh, but is actually a toy. And this is, you know, a point of contention between the two. And as they endure emotional crises, like being trapped in the horror of Sid's house, uh, Buzz has an emotional break, full-on identity crisis, uh, when he realizes Woody is telling the truth. There's some more serious things that happen in Toy Story than we remember. Uh, so this happens. Uh, full mental break. Seeing Buzz's vulnerability, uh, Woody is able to start maybe expressing a little bit of empathy, caring for Buzz's well-being outside of just his self-serving reasons to do so. They need each other, whether they like it or not. Woody uh, then puts himself at great risk and in harm's way as he attempts to rescue Buzz uh, from being blown to bits in Sid's backyard. Uh, and finally, they're on the same team with the same goal which makes them actually great partners and great allies and great co-leaders of the other toys when they are back safely in Andy's room. It's very silly, uh, but learning to be unified saved them both and made them both better. Toys. And so Unity reminds us that we are not lone space rangers. We are a part of a much larger family. The kingdom of God is more than just ourselves. Like toys, uh, we have to be able to put aside our differences as believers to join together and keep the main thing the main thing, Jesus. Working toward that unity helps us too. It helps us to eliminate blind spots and receive perspective that ultimately helps us grow. And so why does it matter? Remember uh, when I was up here, again, a couple weeks ago, Jesus prayed uh, at the end of John 17. I shared part of that prayer with you. And he prayed that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our model for unity is the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. That we are one as they are one. And unity in our one anothering is a direct representation of God to a watching world. So it matters. It matters for us. It matters for our witness. The second major theme of one anothering uh, well is our posture of humility and deference with believers. We are instructed to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, to serve one another, to honor one another above ourselves. This is... Another one of those countercultural behaviors that we have to consciously choose. Because we are prone in our individualism to uh, pride that tells us that we already know what we need to, uh, that being closed off protects us from shame, uh, and that we don't need anybody's help. In contrast, a posture of humility opens us up to be shaped and to be taught by one another. Being subject to one another helps us to extend or to accept care for and from one another. And we need that humility. We need that the deference to be able to serve and to be able to accept service. 
And I think that, you know, in a, in a church like this, our deference for one another is best expressed in small group communities where we really can know others and be known, love others and be loved, and serve others and be served. And when we practice humility in our one anothering, we uh, open ourselves up to learning from one another and growing because of one another. And I think that there's just no better example than just to see it lived out. So uh, we've shown you a little glimpse of what it looks like to be in a small group community every week. I want to show you another example uh, this week of what that relationship can be. I really didn't think I needed a life group because I felt I had all the answers. Boy, was I wrong. The life group has been part of the best thing that I've ever belonged to. It's really fun to go to church and, and see our friends, you know, people that you really know. And we're fortunate too because we've got members or part of the life group that have different age groups, seasons in their life, and we've just learned so much from the older ones and the younger ones as well too. Mm -hmm. The life experiences um, of the older people and how they live out their faith on a daily basis has really been encouraging to me. and. Um, helped me stay connected and encouraged. Being with people more than 20 years older than me is just such a blessing. Your whole life should be filled with people of all different ages, you know. With the wisdom and the faith that they have, it's amazing what you can learn. They respect us because of our age, uh, and they don't realize how much we learn from them. It's really good for old people to, to be with young people uh, and, and hear their experiences and uh, tap into their energy. Be a part of their <laughs> lives, you know. In a group, you've always got prayer partners. You've always got a support system if you need it. You know their highs and lows and some of their problems and some of their joys. We've been at this group for a long time and we've actually seen members go through some tough seasons. Yeah. It's nice to have that support system outside of that immediate family that can help and step in or pray or whatever is needed there. We, we care about one another. We really do. Nobody's mm -hmm. afraid to ask for help. When you have prayer partners or a life group like ours that are caring and show that they are with you no matter what, and that's great. It's just enriching. You can't go through life alone, and you can't grow the same alone. My faith is growing because they're developing me. Sometimes I think that's how God works and speaks. I know it is how He works through one another as we share life. My small group is a blessing. Yeah, it's always a joy when they start coming in our house. is growing because they are developing me. <laughs> what a, you know, great little summary of what we can be and what we can do for and with one another. I love that this group too is able to tap into the richness of the multi-generational church. We have things to offer one another in our differences. And one of the uh, other older couples was missing from this video, and I have to say this theme was not something I prompted in them. We didn't even know, you know, which which uh, sermon uh, we would use each group's story for, but uh, this topic just oozed from them as they talked about their love for one another and for their group. 
humility and service toward one another and love for one another and unity together. The first one another instructions we receive in the New Testament are from uh, Jesus himself. Specifically in the Gospel of John, when Jesus displays humility and displays service by washing his disciples' feet uh, before the Last Supper. And he instructions his disciples, if I then, the Lord and teacher, uh, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's a rabbi willing to do a role that was so beneath him for followers that were so beneath him. This is, you know, our church, it's our example of service. Um, So our model for humility, our model for serving one another is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Our model for unity is the Trinity. Our model for service is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And now, the most common uh, instruction for our one anothering is love. Love one another. First John says it five times in a very short book, love one another. Chapter four, he says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Love one another. It is said 16 times in the New Testament uh, throughout, believers to believers, love one another. It's like we have to keep hearing it. In that same scene uh, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet in John 13, he also tells his disciples that he has a new command for them, and it is to love one another. Now, we know that love one another is not a new thing. We've seen that other places. Uh, But what is new and is what is different uh, is the way that Jesus loves. He raises the bar. Paul explains uh, in Romans 5, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In his uh, Christology, pastor and teacher Mark Moore says that Jesus declared that this is to be the definitive mark of believers, that they love others with selfless sacrifice. We see this in the early church and in how they grew and in why they were targeted. Love, to me, covers everything else in one anothering. So there's a few things that don't technically fit in one of the three categories. I think I can shove them into love because the verses, uh, you know, about speaking truth to one another, about bearing one another's burdens, they fit here too. The intention behind those should be loving. We should do these things for one another in love and out of love for a fellow believer growing as a disciple. So there are one anothering instructions uh, to us that fall into this that one might consider to be the unpleasant ones. Galatians 6 tells us to bear one another's burdens. This verse is talking about moral burdens and gently rebuking a believer. Breaking cycles of sin. This is not fun. That's uncomfortable. James 5 tells us to confess our sins to one another. How many of us are doing that on a regular basis? That's private. I can fix it. I can figure it out myself. Colossians 3 tells us to bear with each other and forgive one another. It also tells us to uh, teach and admonish one another. Admonish means advise or urge or warn. Again, it doesn't feel like my place, but it is. 
Church, loving one another well means that in relationship, we redirect a member of our family from accidentally walking off a cliff because of a blind spot. It means getting very honest about anything, keeping us from representing Christ and growing as a disciple well. That we own up to our mistakes and that the folks we own up to will handle us with kindness and with grace. That's our place. That we sit with a brother or sister that's hurting in the weight of failure or of pain. That we speak truth over them. We combat the lies of the enemy. These are, this is our job, to get involved. My small group is uh, starting, I think, to hit its stride and bearing with one another. Uh, before the pandemic, we had zero uh, children, and now there are four. Four of them, four sweet little girls, uh, and eight very confused parents. Uh, and the meal trains were easy. Meeting physical needs for a new parent uh, is not that vulnerable. But then came the sleepless nights, the adjustments to our marriages, uh, along with it, home projects and emergency babysitting and marital or individual therapy, professional failures, you know, family strife and real tears of mourning and of joy. And burdens we were bearing became deeper, they became more personal and more tangled in shame. When uh, Jonathan finished his master's degree, uh, for those that don't know, my husband is a marriage and family therapist. Yes, that is a trap for those of us who are not that emotionally uh, connected. But anyway, after uh, his degree, he needed to sit for his professional license exam, and he failed. And he retook it, and he failed again, and again. And I lost count of the amount of times that he had to take it. Jonathan spent more than three years battling this test that most of his colleagues passed on the first try. It was an incredibly vulnerable and difficult season for our family, especially for him, questioning his giftedness his calling, and his self-worth. Our small group was there. They watched and they prayed as he chose again and again and again to keep seeking the ability to use this degree um, for his calling. And, you know, until January of last year when he passed. This was great news. I'm so proud of him. And then a few months later, a new couple joined our small group. And the husband uh, was finishing a different degree program and about to sit for his professional licensing exam. And he failed. And a job opportunity passed, and he felt hopeless. And at the retest, he failed again. And he and Jonathan got to connect with one another over a very vulnerable season where he questioned his own giftedness and self-worth things that it's hard for men in our society to, to shoulder and talk with other men about. And our small group communities surrounded this couple with encouragement, with study accountability, a place to do that, a listening ear, until a few weeks ago when our group laid hands and prayed for him before his third try. And they were real man tears, mostly from my husband, because <laughs> again, he's a marriage and family therapist, <laughs> and he feels things. And this week, we were some of the first to get to hear the news that he passed his license exam. And when Jonathan saw them again at small group, he cried all over again. 
Because in community, our victories and our struggles are not our own. Bearing with one another looks like being invested in one another's lives to the point where we get to co-claim triumphs and defeats. We bear with one another. We get involved. Let's get uh, 1 John 4 back up on the screen. We read this earlier. How do we know of God's love for us? How do we know that it's so necessary then to love one another? We're going to back it up a few verses. We read uh, the end earlier, but a little bit before that. It says, uh, dear brothers, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And it continues. And there it is. In verse 9, the Trinity sent a representative to die for us and give us a chance to live in God's community of love. Our model for selfless love is the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's review. Our model for unity is the Trinity. Our model for humility is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And our model for selfless love is the cross. These are ideals that are out of our reach alone. I am aware of that. But that is why, church, we're never done practicing and developing our one anothering muscles. That's why we need to keep hearing these verses and finding ways to put them into practice. Reading through uh, all of those one anothering instructions from the beginning, there's a lot of rebuke in there for churches that are not getting it right. Mistakes were made for Paul to have to write some of these letters. But then you stumble upon a letter from Paul to the church of Thessalonica. See, Paul and Silas helped to found this church back in Acts 17. Uh, as people responded to the gospel of Jesus, though, the Jews were threatened. They incited a riot in the city. Uh, Paul and Silas were chased out of town, and just to make sure they got the job done, the Jews followed them to the next town and chased them out of that one too. And so they left this fledgling group of believers behind in Thessalonica. But those believers thrived. And so Paul sits down to pen them a letter. He's gotten an update about how they're doing. And uh, he says, so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in, in those places, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And this happened because the church modeled what they had learned from Paul and Silas during their time together. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives, because you had become so dear to us. And so that's what they did. They shared the gospel, and they shared their lives, and they were fortified. Sharing the truth of the gospel, having that in common with one another, isn't a complete picture without sharing our very lives as well. Paul's best work and the best outcome happened through loving relationship. We grow best that way. We are challenged most in that way. But at the same time, the church in Thessalonica faced intense persecution. So, as the church is already doing it right, they're facing constant trials, and Paul sits down to pen this letter, what uh, does he want to reiterate to them? What will he write to them? How does he want to instruct them? He reminds them of the hope of the coming of Jesus. He reminds them to live as children of the light. 
And verse 11 starts, therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Just in that little passage, I see a call for unity, for humility, and for love in word and in action. They're to encourage, they're to practice humility through submitting to authority and to admonishment. They are to be loving, they're to live in peace. This little church is under fire. Life for them is hard. And they are drilling down in their focus and their energy on one another and how they do life together. It is their witness, it is their discipleship, it is their source of strength and of hope. And you know, even before the events of the last week or so, Afghanistan was ranked as the second most difficult country to follow Jesus. It is impossible to live openly as a believer in Afghanistan. If you are a Christian, uh, it's your family's duty to protect their honor by disowning or killing you. And I couldn't read about the church in Thessalonica this week without thinking of the small secret church in Afghanistan where 0.1% of the population believes in Jesus. But despite persecution and danger, the church in Afghanistan is also the second fastest growing church in the world. Her brothers and their sisters in the faith grow day by day. It's my hope that they're able to practice these words found in 1 Thessalonians as they endure together. That in their small, secret, localized communities or the global church uh, community around them, uh, that these are sources of peace and strength and courage in dark and hopeless days. Your faith is not individual. We need each other. And if we don't think we do, we're not paying attention. We're not seeing how we were designed. We are not noticing how the enemy works through isolation. We are not joining in the mission and family of the global church without each other. Our one anothering is a witness to a watching world. It is a reminder that we are a part of the kingdom of God more so than any earthly family or ethnic group or nationality. First and foremost, the kingdom of God defines us. It is fortifying so we stand firm. It is challenging so we grow deeper and we better reflect Jesus. Ultimately, so that we can look more like him. Practice makes perfect and good things take time. So we need to be exercising our one anothering muscles regular, regularly in a community where we are known and we know others, where we are responsible for one another and where we will be invited into God's community of love together. Our model for unity is the Trinity. Our model for selfless love is the cross. Our model for humility is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So this is a time where we're gonna reflect on those things. We're gonna approach the table for communion now church and we will do it a little differently than we have in the past few weeks. We are looking for an extended time of communion with God and with one another. There's a lot here to unpack. If you came to church with someone today, uh, if your small group is nearby, if you're sitting with a spouse, uh, scooch together. I will encourage you to partake in this meal together. Pray with one another. 
Ask God to help you in your one anothering. Exercise confession and encouragement. Maybe there's someone not physically here with you and you'd like to take a minute to take out your phone, send them a text right now while you're thinking about it and thank them for the community that they bring into your life. Or, you know, let them know that you're not there yet. Express your hope in going deeper and building that community. And maybe nobody comes to your mind um, and you're ready to fill out that group form because you've come to understand that community uh, is necessary and you have no idea where to begin. The band is out. You're going to see them partake in communion together as well. So don't feel uncomfortable about moving if you need to, turning toward one another, having a conversation. Wherever you're at in community and with one another in Uh, this morning. Let's start there. And then as you're ready, pivot toward reflecting on God's example of community and the instruction and the example that we have been given. Where do you need the most help? Where do you excel and how does that uh, give you a greater appreciation for God who is a community of love? What does that do for you as you approach communion knowing the sacrifice that God made to leave the door open for us to have community with him? Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, I'm going to make this short because I know you have things you would like to say to the believers here. Each time we come to this table for communion, we seek more of you. We seek a deeper understanding and appreciation and love for you. We seek your presence. Speak to us. Help us to remember you and to look forward to what you call us to.